For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1 through 8. And um, <clears throat> I entitled this, The Stewardship Approach to Resolving Conflict. I mean, when you look at most relationships out in the world, most of the time relationships end abruptly because a conflict will suddenly break out. And as a result, people feel like they cannot uh, fix the conflict or the relationships and they decide to part ways. And so God speaks to this area because he's concerned about the unity in our community. Let's begin. <clears throat> a few weeks ago, we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul indicated to us that there was actually a, some division and disunity brewing among the Corinthian believers. He says in chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, I appeal to you, brothers, in the, same, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be, may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So he heard this report from Chloe's people that there was infighting going on among the Corinthian believers. And it turns out that things had escalated to the point where these believers were actually taking each other to court over disputes that they were having. When we look at chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, If any one of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Now, when he says saints, he's not talking about, you know, people who, uh, you know, are holy people who are mostly dead. Um, he's talking about the believers in Christ. Uh, the word saint uh, just simply means the holy ones or the called out ones, people whom God has made distinct through Jesus. So he's just talking about regular believers, then he says in verse 2, don't you know that the saints or the believers will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? The Bible actually says that because God has made us co-heirs with Christ, that one day we're actually going to reign with him since we're his children. He says this in Romans 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So God says that one day when Jesus comes to reign here on earth to establish his kingdom, that God will actually call on us to co-reign with Christ. In fact, there are indications throughout the New Testament that God in his new kingdom will assign to believers the responsibility of governing cities in his kingdom. And so we will play a crucial leadership role. And he's using this as really an argument for why we shouldn't be fighting with one another. He says in verse three, he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things in this life? It's kind of odd. What does this have to do with anything? Well, as it turns out, we might actually become a tribunal where God's enemy, in his attempts to derail our faith throughout our entire lives, God will actually prosecute him publicly and that we will become star witnesses and also the judges 
who condemn him for the things that he's done. And so Paul is saying, you know, consider your standing in God's kingdom. Consider the role that you will be playing as, you know, people who will bring about justice, who be ruling. Are you then not competent enough to even figure out these disputes among you? Why are you going to human courts to try to litigate this before the unbelieving people? And he says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to your shame. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and that in front of unbelieving people. So in verse 4, it's a little weird. He, at least the New International Version, which I'm reading from, takes this to be a, um, a ironic imperative. In other words, Paul is saying, if you have disputes, uh, why, don't, you know, why don't you even uh, ju- appoint as judges men of little account in the church? Which, to me, doesn't really make much sense. In another translation, the New American Standard, they phrase this as a question. Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Which I think the context dictates that he's talking about taking one another to the, uh, before, you know, courts. So I think that this is probably what he means here, that he's asking this question. Are, are, you, are you seriously going to take these matters before uh, the courts instead of trying to figure that out amongst yourselves? He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've already been completely defeated. So in what sense was this this defeat for them? I think, first of all, it damages our unity. One of the things that God says he values is preserving our unity with one another because he purchased that through Jesus' death, that we are all unified because we stand under the grace of God, that there aren't There isn't a hierarchy where there are some believers who are better than others because of the things that they've done or because they're more righteous, but that we have all come into a relationship with God based on God's mercy. And so we have a deep sense of unity that comes through our relationship with Christ. And anything that damages that or anything that uproots that, God takes exception of it and he says that it's a real problem. And so it's defeating that they are destroying the unity among God's people. Secondly, it damages Christ's reputation. One of the things that Jesus wants from his followers is to act as sort of a a light in the dark world in which we live. And we are to be different from the world in that we are unified with one another and exhibit love for one another that's attractive to the watching world. And so this was part of Jesus' strategy in reaching the world, that we are to be distinct by our love. And so when we're taking each other to court, where we're tearing each other apart as a result of conflict, God says that that damages Christ's reputation since we're his ambassadors here on earth. 
He says, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? In other words, why are you holding on to your rights as if that's the standard we're living by? You know, one of the things that's a little bit odd about becoming a Christian is that when you receive Christ, when you receive God's mercy, the whole notion of just, what's just, kind of gets thrown out the door. And so for us to hold on to our rights and say, I deserve this, I'm entitled to this, I'm owed this for you to treat me a certain way, really doesn't make any sense. Because we have forfeited that because of God's grace. And one of the things that's really interesting is that Jesus lays out a pattern for us that, you know, prior to coming to earth, Jesus actually reigned in heaven and decided for our sake to set aside his rights and privileges as king to condescend himself to to be with us here on earth. And so Jesus lays out this pattern for us to follow that we are to then lay down our rights, our expectations, and to serve one another in humility and in love. And so, you know, it's ironic when we demand what we think is, is fair or what's due to us as believers, we're really asking for God's judgment because that's what we deserve. And yet God gives us mercy instead. He says, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this even to your brothers. So instead of laying down their rights, instead of forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven them, it turns out that they were retaliating against one another by taking each other to court. And, you know, I think this points to the fact that conflict quickly unmasks our true value system. You know, you look at somebody... They seem like a nice person, pretty genteel. But then when they get into a fight with somebody, you know, their claws start coming out. Uh, They they, uh, are nasty. They're angry. And part of this is, is that, you know, in each and every one of us, there is this selfish desire to get what's mine. You know, James, in James 4, verse 1 and 2, sort of outlines the motivation behind a lot of conflicts that brew among us. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He says, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill, you covet, but you can't have what you want and you quarrel and fight. And so the reason why we constantly tear each other apart in large part is because of jealousy. We want what another person has or Uh, We feel like somebody's blocking us from what we really want. And so uh, we tear them apart to get what we want. So, you know, when we talk about this area of conflict, I think there's a lot of confusion. You know, when I look at my relationships, a lot of times um, they didn't last very long. Uh, Before I met Christ, it's almost like somebody slapped, you know, a one-year expiration date on my relationships because inevitably we would get into a fight and it would be like, well, there's just no way for us to reconcile and so we should just go our separate ways. 
And I think a lot of us have had that experience where it seems like we go through this endless cycle of making friends, getting into arguments, and then throwing in the towel and saying, I'm, I need to go and find somebody else who's, who's you know, a better friend to me, who's going to love me better. And yet, we fail to realize that the real problem is staring us right in the mirror, that it's our inability to resolve conflict. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about conflict. And of course, we could probably spend two or three weeks on this and unpack it. But I think it'd be good for us to at least have an overview so that we have some, some uh, you know, a foundation to be able to manage conflict as it arises in our lives. Now, we should point out, it doesn't mean that we should never find ourselves in conflict. Um, there are times where we need to uh, engage in conflict, but not for selfish reasons. You know, as we mentioned last week, there are times where people are headed in a destructive path and we actually need to engage in conflict by raising tension with that person to show them that this, this area, this pattern of life is going to destroy them. And so in those cases, it's actually loving for us to engage in conflict. In other cases, we're arguing over an issue but it's not a selfish thing. We're, we're trying to figure out what's best for an individual or for a group of people, and we may not necessarily we may not agree about that. And in those cases, that's you know that's good conflict. That's where we are discussing, dialoguing about things that we disagree about, and in many ways that that leads to healthy conclusions and um, you know different solutions to problems. Okay. Let's look at two different approaches to conflict. I think first we should start with the world's approach to conflict. You know, in the world's view of conflict, a lot of times people ask themselves this question, how do I avoid a fight? And so the best way to manage conflict as it arises is to try to escape. How do I get, get out of this? And in some cases, people feel like, well, I'll just appease this person even though I don't necessarily agree with them, I'll just appease them so we don't have to fight. Or maybe we're willing to admit, okay, I'm wrong, even though we don't necessarily think we're wrong, just to keep the peace. And so you see this a lot of times where people won't engage in conflict, they're afraid of it, and will do anything they can to get out of it. You know, some of us grew up in families like this where there was always simmering bitterness and anger and resentment and it's because there was no way to really discuss conflict because it was unacceptable to even to, to broach these uncomfortable topics because they were too awkward. You know, for others, they ask themselves, how am I going to get my way? You know, there are only two options when it comes to this person. It's my way or the highway. And... Um, you know, this is where the person thinks, how can I get an advantage? How can I win? And in some extreme cases, people who approach conflict with this question will go to any length to win a conflict. Arguing, destroying the relationship. You know, to them, there's only uh, one thing that's more important than winning. 
That's not losing, right? <laughs> Others would say, how do I keep people happy? You know, how, how do I just do things so that people don't get upset, my, my friends and my family members? And so they're constantly tiptoeing around one another, hoping to avoid conflict. And so uh, when you look at these different approaches to conflict, I think they're inadequate. They're problematic. Because on the one hand, they don't adequately deal with conflict when they arise. Or, um, you know, it, it turns into a battle, a fight, where there are two people struggling and somebody has to win. And I think that um, in many cases, this has led to broken relationships. Ken Sandy, in his excellent book, The Peacemaker, I don't know if you've ever read this, but it uh, used to be standard reading around here. I remember reading this as a younger believer and just being completely blown away. Um, so the insights that I gained from this book not only helped me manage conflict, but it also helped me out relationally. Here's an excerpt from his book. He says, there are also some interesting contrasts between the various responses to conflict. First, there's a difference in focus. When I resort to an escape response, I'm generally focused on me. I'm looking for what's easy, convenient, or non-threatening for myself. When I use an attack response, I'm generally focused on you, blaming you and expecting you to give in and solve the problem. People who use escape responses are usually intent on peace faking or making things look good even when they're not. This is especially common in the church where people are often more concerned about the appearance rather than the reality of peace. Attack responses are used by people who are prone to peace breaking. They're more willing to sacrifice peace and unity to get what they want. I think it's a pretty good summary of the, the variety of approaches to conflict that you see. Well, on the other hand, you have what you might call the stewardship approach to conflict. This approaches conflict from the standpoint of viewing each opportunity that God has given to us as a responsibility or a stewardship. You know, in the ancient world, a wealthy landowner would often delegate the affairs of his household to a steward. And the steward didn't own the property or the estate or the resources that the master uh, gave to him. He was simply responsible to discharge uh, his, his uh, duties. And so God views our life as a stewardship he's given to us. You know, all the things that you have, whether it's your time, your money, your resources, your intellect, all of those things God has given to you whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And every opportunity that enters your life, every situation that enters your life, God has allowed those things to enter into your life as an opportunity in order to grow you and change you. And so he uses conflict a lot of times to root out a lot of the character issues that are laying hidden under the surface. As we grow close to one another, as we share lives, our lives with one another, inevitably, uh, our problems start to pop up, 
and we find ourselves in conflict. You know, there's a few things that we aim to accomplish through conflict. First of all, we want to bring glory to God. You know, when we approach a conflict, we're thinking to ourselves, you know, how can I glorify God in this situation? Instead of, you know, uh, rubbing his reputation in the mud in front of people. Again, Sandy says, the Bible teaches that we should see conflict neither as an inconvenience nor as an occasion for selfish gain, but rather as an opportunity to demonstrate the presence and power of God. Every time you encounter a conflict, you have an opportunity to show what you really think of God. The other benefit of a God-centered approach to conflict resolution is that it makes you less dependent on results. Even if others refuse to respond positively to your efforts to make peace, you can find comfort and encouragement in the knowledge that God is pleased with your obedience. That's really one of the wonderful things about the stewardship view of conflict. That even if the person, the, the, our opponent, doesn't respond the way that we would like, as long as we know that we have tried our best and that we have tried to be faithful to God through this conflict, we can, we can rest assured that, um, you know, God is pleased with that. You know, as we enter a conflict, you know, we should think to ourselves, what is going to glorify God here? Or another way to think of this is, if God were to evaluate this conflict at some later time, how would you like him to complete these sentences? I'm really pleased that you blank, that you forgave him even though you didn't need to. Or what about this? I'm really pleased that you did not cuss him out. I'm really pleased that you did not slap the taste out of her mouth when she said that to you, right? And so I think it's a really good way to think about how we should approach conflict and also how we, we should respond in these situations. Sandy says, in conflict, you show that you either have a big God or you have a big ego and big problems. <laughs> well, I think the second thing is to serve other people. That through conflict, we actually have an opportunity to serve and show love to one another. Um, you know, there are a number of things that we can do when we encounter conflict. I think, first of all, we can choose to overlook an offense. And I think that this is probably what we should do most of the time. You know, some things are so small, so minuscule, that we should just forget about it, not make a big deal about it. And I think that's important because that's, that's the kind of ethos that we want in our community. We don't want people just picking at each other and uh, being, you know, uh, nitpicky about problems. We should, we should be forgiving and willing to overlook an offense. Look at what Proverbs 19.11 says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It's to his glory to overlook an offense. And so this is probably what we should be doing most of the time, is willing to overlook an offense. There are some cases, though, where, you know, we, they're serious enough where we shouldn't overlook them, in which case we probably need to compromise. And so instead of arguing and fighting and just uh, 
you know, demanding that we get what we want, in, in many cases, we need to compromise and see that maybe there's a middle ground that we can find and that we can do this in a way that, that honors and glorifies God. In some cases, we may want to accommodate. We don't have to always win. There are some cases where, okay, we're in disagreement about this issue. It might be something that's important, but it's a gray area issue. So maybe there isn't a right or wrong answer. It's not a moral issue. In which case, maybe I should just defer in this case. And I think that a spiritual and mature person of God is someone who's willing to defer. Uh, you see cases of this instead of them constantly fighting to try to get their way. In some cases, though, we need to win the argument. You know, we're not going to just uh, lay down and take it every single time. Um, and it's not because, you know, we have to show our dominance from time to time so people don't push us over. It's not that. In some cases, we need to win the argument for the benefit of the individual. As I mentioned last week, there are times where this person is living such a destructive way of life that we need to win the conflict with them. And it's not because that's what we want. It's for their benefit that we're doing this. Think about the case there in Galatians chapter 2 where the apostle Peter, when the Jewish Christian believer showed up, he stopped eating with the Gentile or non-Jewish believers. And Paul saw a real problem with that. He saw that this was creating partiality within God's spiritual community. He, he thought it was serious enough that he actually walked up to Peter in the, in the presence of many people and confronted him. He's like, you're being a total hypocrite because just last week you were, you were eating with these guys and now you don't even want to associate with them. What's up with that? And so Paul had some moral fiber. He was willing to get up into people's faces, but it wasn't for selfish reasons. It was for the benefit of the people whom he was serving. Now, I want to lay out a few practical steps that we can take in resolving conflict. Um, there are eight of them, so we're going to be speeding through these. But... I would encourage you, you know, if you've never read that book, uh, Peacemaker, it's worth reading. It, it's, it's, it's lengthy. It's like uh, three or 400 pages long. But um, I think it's worthwhile, especially since um, you will find yourself in conflict sooner or later. I think, first of all, he recommends that we remove the log from our own eye. This comes directly from Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 7, where he gives this humorous uh, metaphor where he says, you know, uh, it's kind of ridiculous that you would walk up and try to pick the speck out of your brother's eye when you have this massive log protruding from your eye. He says, if you want to pick the speck out of your brother's eye, first remove the log from your own eye, then you'll see clearly enough to, to pick out the speck out of your brother's eye. And, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting Im image where... You know, imagine if uh, your friend's like, oh, man, I got some sawdust in my eye. And you're like, yeah, let me get that out. But you keep smacking them in the face with a two-by-four hanging out of your head. You're like, dude, you've got a problem. Why don't you fix that first before you fix mine? 
And he uses this as a way of saying that, you know, before we go and correct someone else for what they've done wrong to us, it's important for us to evaluate and see what we have done ourselves. That's important because it sets the tone. It, it puts us in a humble posture to realize we have our own problems. You know, when we feel like somebody has done us wrong, the self-righteousness within us starts to well up. We, we, we start to get on our high horse and we think we're so much better than this person that we're fighting with, and yet we're blind to our own problems. And so it's important for us to evaluate our own problems first before approaching somebody in a conflict. You know, I think we should ask ourselves, how have I made this conflict worse in preparation for meeting with the person we're conflicted with? Um, a lot of times we have aggravated the conflict in some way, even if we're not in the wrong entirely. I remember uh, several years ago, um, I was calling this uh, woman, a friend of mine, about an issue or a concern that I had. And she was real defensive. She was arguing against me and things kind of escalated over the phone. And I uh, hung up on her, right? <laughs> she deserved it. She was in the wrong. <laughs> so the next day I saw her and, uh, you know, I confronted her about it again. And it didn't go well. You know, things escalated. We were like shouting at each other. And sometime later, I met with uh, my spiritual mentor, and I was just venting about how she mistreated me. She was clearly in the wrong, and yet she was insisting that she was right. And uh, I was like, man, can you believe that she was yelling? She was like this close to me yelling the whole time. And he's like, so what did you do? And I was like, nothing, man. I didn't do anything. She's clearly in the wrong, right? He's like, oh, so she just got up in your face and started yelling at you for no reason? I was like, yeah, basically. And so he, you know, he started pressing me and eventually I admit, I was like, yeah, you know, I lost my temper on the phone with her. And he's like, well, okay, even though you were in the right about the issue, you, it doesn't matter. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that you can call her names and lash out at her. Um, and so we need to evaluate, you know, when we're involved in a conflict, what have we done to contribute to this? Secondly, have we forgiven the person uh, with which we're conflicted? Have we forgiven them from the heart? And it's important that we realize, you know, God gives us a unique basis for forgiveness. Uh, Colossians 3.13 says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have with, with another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. So the basis, the foundation for our forgiveness happens to be that God has already forgiven us. The Bible teaches that God is offended by our moral wrongdoing because he is the, the final arbiter of justice in the universe. And so when we commit moral wrongdoing, God says that we stand guilty before him. And yet, instead of punishing us, instead of judging us, God says that he loves us and shows us mercy. And he did that by sending Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross to forgive us for all the things that we've done. And so, 
It's hypocritical then for us to receive God's forgiveness for all the things that we've done. And then when someone does something wrong to us, say, well, I'm just not going to forgive you. You know, uh, you owe me for what you've done. And yet God has forgiven us for all these things. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, people who are non-Christian never forgive All I'm saying is that Christians have a unique basis for forgiveness, that we're nearly obligated because of what Jesus has done for us to forgive one another. Well, he said, uh, secondly, we should go and admit our fault. In Matthew 5, 23, Jesus talks about how if you are offering something in the temple and you realize that you have a problem or a conflict with your brother or sister, You need to set your gift aside and go make yourself right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your sacrifice. So in other words, there is a desire, a drive to go and reconcile with people with whom we're conflicted with. Um, You know, when we admit our fault, it needs to be honest. We're not going to Admit, you know, yeah, I did this even though we didn't because we want to appease that person. So it needs to be honest. Um, secondly, it needs to be unqualified. You know, sometimes I've had, I've had people come up to me and apologize and say, you know, I'm really sorry um, that I said that thing to you, but you were really pissing me off. You know, just, just that addition was sort of like, okay. So you're saying that I made you do that then, right? That's not really an apology at all. Or the best one is, I'm really sorry about how that made you feel. You know, when you read between the lines, that's basically saying, uh, you're just too sensitive and you should probably get over it. And so we need to apologize in an unqualified way. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And that's it. And I think when we go into a situation where we're trying to resolve conflict and we set the tone by first admitting our fault, it's amazing how um, that disarms your opponent. I've had somebody do this to me before where we were you know, embroiled in a conflict And this guy walked in and he just said, you know, before we even start talking, I just want to admit the things that I did wrong here and just laid out two or three things that he did. And uh, I walked in there thinking we're going to have a fight, but then I was confused. I was like, okay, what am I supposed to do now? He's apologizing. (laughs) And so I think that sets the tone of humility, which I think uh, makes the likelihood of resolving the conflict even higher. And it needs to be unconditional. Think about the example that Jesus gives in Luke 15, where the lost son, after squandering his father's inheritance, and when he decides that he's going to go back to his father, he rehearses in his mind what he's going to say. And when he finally gets to the father, he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your servants. And so when we apologize to someone, it should be unconditional. Because sometimes, you know, we'll we'll apologize, but with an expectation that they're going to reciprocate. And when they don't, we're just like, wait, you did something wrong too. 
So what, you're not going to say anything about that? And so it needs to be unconditional. Third, consider a unilateral solution where in the midst of conflict, we just say, you know, this is serious, but I forgive you. And I'm going to release you of your wrongdoing. Um, Look at Proverbs 19, verse 1. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It's to his glory to overlook an offense. Again, notice that tone that God is trying to portray, that we shouldn't be constantly fighting with one another and looking for opportunities to, to defend our rights. What about Proverbs 12, verse 16? A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. And my all-time favorite, Proverbs 17, verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. You're like, what does that mean? Well, I think it's a Hebrew euphemism for urinating. You know how that is. You know, you, you, you go to the bathroom and you start to, to pee a little bit. It's hard to stop, right? You just got to let it go. And so, essentially, God's saying it's, it's similar when it comes to conflict. It's like, once you get into the conflict, it's going to be hard to stop. So you might as well just avoid it to begin with. Number four, clarify the situation. You know, while you're preparing to meet, uh, you should ask yourself, is this a personal issue? And what I mean by this is, you know, are we upset about the tone that this person brings, or do we sense that they're judging us or that they're being condescending? You know, these are more subjective elements that maybe we feel. Or are these material issues? For example, I let, I let my friend borrow my car and he crashed it. So what are we supposed to do about that? Who's going to pay for that? And so conflict may arise over material damage Or, for example, we're arguing over an issue. So it's not personal, or maybe it didn't start off personal, but there was an issue, an objective issue that we were fighting over, and maybe we need to clarify what those things are. Also, we should identify our feelings. You know, we should identify our own feelings, because if, if we don't lay it all out on the table, if we don't express how we truly feel, A lot of times, resentment and bitterness is going to start to build up again. And we're going to feel unresolved about our conflict. Also, I think it's important to identify what our opponent might have felt when we said or did certain things. You know, this is what you call empathy, where you put yourself in somebody else's shoes and you're thinking, how would I I have responded if I were on the receiving end of what I said? And that's helpful for us to be able to, um, you know, understand where they're coming from and it makes it more likely that we're going to resolve the conflict. And finally, we need to ask ourselves, what do I want to see change? You know, if you're drawing blanks about this in the midst of conflict, then it probably means that you have unrealistic expectations. You know, if somebody said to you, so what do you expect to change? And you're like, I don't know. I mean, something. Um, then you're probably going to find yourself in conflict again with that person. Or you're going to find that it's unresolved. Number five, forgive. You know, 
this is one of the more important things that we should do. And, you know, when we talk about forgiveness, it's important for us to define. First of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. You know, you don't feel like you've forgiven somebody. It's a decision that we make. And it's important for us to, to make that distinction because sometimes our feelings and what we've decided don't seem to align. And so it's important for us to see that we, when we're forgiving someone, we're making a decision to release them from their culpability. It's also not forgetting. You know, it's not this passive thing where you just sort of forget about it or try to, you know, keep it out of your mind and then hope that it sort of fades with time. That's not the way that forgiveness works. It's an active thing where we actually decide to, um, you know, essentially absorb the damage within ourselves, whether that's to our reputation, whether that's, uh, you know, financial. And we decide that we're going to release that person from their culpability. You know, when God says uh, that he forgets our sins, he's not saying that he's having like difficulty remembering what we've done. It's that he's chosen not to think about it and dwell on it. And so in the same way, when we forgive someone, we're not forgetting in the sense that we're trying to block it out of our minds. It's a conscious decision not to dwell on it constantly. It's not excusing. We're not saying, well, you didn't really do anything wrong, I guess. Um, the mere fact that we have to forgive this person suggests that it's, that it's a big deal, that there was something wrong. It's also not the same as trust. You know, just because we forgive somebody doesn't mean that we trust them. You know, if my roommate stole something from me, that doesn't mean that I'm going to leave, you know, $20 out on the counter. Um, or, you know, if a man goes out on his wife and his wife says, you know, I forgive you for the things that you've done, but you need to go and pack up your bags and leave right now. Those things are compatible. Now, forgiveness is, according to Ken Sandy, uh, means, he says, to forgive means to release from liability, to suffer punishment or penalty. Afiemi, a Greek word that's often translated as forgive, means to let go, release, or remit. As these words indicate, forgiveness can be a costly activity when you cancel a debt. It doesn't simply disappear. Instead, you absorb a liability someone else deserves to pay. Similarly, forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's sins and release the person from liability to punishment. Through forgiveness, God tears down the walls that our sins have erected and it opens the way for a renewed relationship with him. This is exactly what we must do if we are to forgive as the Lord forgives us. We must release the person who has wronged us from the penalty of being separated from us. We must not hold on to the wrongs against others, not thinking about them and not punishing others for them. Therefore, forgiveness may be described as making four decisions. I will not think about this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about it. And I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I think that's valuable advice when it comes to forgiveness. Number five, meeting with your opponent. Um, you know, in some cases, as we discuss 
the matters uh, with which we're fighting about with this person, we, we may need to reprove the person. Um, you know, they may have done something serious and we may need to bring in some correction. Also, we may need to negotiate where we find a compromise where we can agree, okay, you know, we're going we're gonna to meet halfway here and resolve this. Also, you want to leave room for God. Sometimes when we meet with somebody, they may not respond super well. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, to speak to them, and then maybe revisit that uh, issue or that, you know, talk to that person again at some later time. And finally, if necessary, seek mediation. And that's exactly what Paul was calling for here with the Corinthian believers, that they should have uh, asked for mediation. Instead, they were taking each other to court. Okay, let's draw a few conclusions. I think the first thing is handling conflict maturely is really one of the most advanced areas of spiritual learning. This, is, this tests you in terms of your maturity. You know, you can, you can read the Bible all you want, you can share your spiritual insights all you want, but I think it's when we're involved in a conflict that our true self really comes out. And I've been in conflict with people who are pretty mature, and it's, it's amazing to see them navigate through that in a mature way. It's something we should all aspire to. Secondly, if you learn God's way here, you're going to save yourself unimagined misery. You know, one of the biggest sources of pain and suffering in our lives has to do with the broken relationships we have. And many of those relationships are due to unmanaged and unresolved conflict. And so taking the time to study this and learn this is not only going to help you maintain long-term friendships, uh, you know, when you decide to have a family one day, uh, it'll help you create an environment for your family that's not going to be the same as maybe you grew up with, which was dysfunctional. And finally, if you're here tonight and you don't know God personally, I'd urge you to end your conflict with God. Uh, it turns out, the Bible says that we stand as enemies with God because of the things that we've done wrong. But God, in his love, decided to sacrifice himself through, this, through the man Jesus Christ to offer us peace. And we can accept that by simply turning to him and receiving his forgiveness. All right, why don't we uh, just spend a little bit of time here talking to God and then uh, we can hang out. Yeah, Lord, I can attest that this stuff works. Uh, some of my closest friends are the people whom uh, I've had the, probably the biggest conflict with. And um, thank you for, uh, you know, what you outline in the Bible, teaching us this practical way of resolving conflict. And I pray that uh, as we grow in our relationship with you, that we can become skilled at resolving conflict and also becoming uh, people who... Uh, our peacemakers, that we are able to help um, heal uh, disunity and uh, conflict that we see amongst our friends. And um, we also uh, just pray for those of us, Lord, who are still in conflict with you, um, where we stand opposed to you. We, um, 
don't want to acknowledge you in our lives, and yet uh, we sense in our hearts that uh, something's missing, something's wrong in our life. Pray that we would lay down arms and finally accept the forgiveness that you offer us through Jesus. And um, we pray, too, that we can just have a good time hanging out here. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.